Oftentimes as Christians, we talk in a language that is foreign to unchurched people. Some call it Christianese, and it is not understood by the outside world. However, we never think from the perspective and continue to use Christianese terms with those in the world thinking everyone understands what we're talking about. Brandon Hilgemann shares 12 Christianese words and phrases we say that confuse non-believers and perhaps require some explanation. Number one, fellowship. Only Christians call hanging out together fellowshipping. Those outside the church may think you're referring to a work program for on-the-job training. Number two, quiet time. Is that like time out? Christians may know that you mean time spent in prayer and reading God's Word, usually in the morning with a cup of coffee, but non-Christians don't. Number three, hedge of protection. How much protection does a hedge even provide? I, for one, would rather have some bulletproof glass of protection or maybe a castle with a mode of protection. Number four, small group, home group, life group, missional community group, life transformation group. It seems every church has a different name for their groups. Whatever you brand them, explain what they are. These names mean nothing to outsiders. Number five, traveling mercies. What is a traveling mercy anyway? Nobody outside of the church talks like this. Could you just say, save trip instead? Number six, washed by the blood or saved by the blood of the Lamb. Could anything sound more like a cult to an outsider than the mental image of people getting washed in sheep blood? Number seven, anointed. Where would a person ever hear this word outside of Christian circles? Usually, you're simply trying to say that a person has a God-given ability. Number eight, hallelujah. Most people know that hallelujah is a word Christians say when they are praising God for something. But still, I doubt that the average guest at your church is fluent in Hebrew. Number nine, tithe, tithing, tithes and offerings. It is intimidating enough to a newcomer that you are asking them to give you money. The least you could do is to clarify the words you use when you do it. Number 10, communion, Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, Eucharist. We have a lot of words for the Christian ritual of eating crackers with a shot of grape juice. Don't assume that everyone knows what you mean, even Christians from a different Christian tradition. Number 11, lay hands on. Does this sound a bit violent to anyone else? It sounds similar to the phrase, don't lay a hand on her. Of course, Christians know you mean prayer, but they are the insiders. Number 12, body of Christ. Are you talking about Jesus' physical body or an insider's metaphor for the church? My friends, because the world doesn't get us, we get scared talking to them and don't want to have spiritual conversations with them thinking either we can't get our message across or they won't understand us anyways. And there are a lot of other reasons why it's so hard to have spiritual conversations. And yet spiritual conversations are so needed today. As we continue our sermon series Voyager, looking at the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul as recorded in the book of Acts, we want to learn some biblical principles about how to have spiritual conversations. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 22, as we look at verse 30 and go all the way to chapter 23, verse 35. Acts chapter 22, verse 30, to chapter 23, verse 35. I read now verse 30 of Acts chapter 22. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, 
he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priest and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. The last time we left off, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem and held by the Roman garrison commander, Claudius Lysias, because his appearance in Jerusalem, specifically in the temple courtyard, had caused a riot. The commander wanted to know in more detail what Paul was being accused of, so he asked that the chief priests and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council, be brought into the Antonia fortress, and Paul was also brought before them for a fact-finding hearing to figure out what was happening. With the Jewish religious leaders before him, Paul began to defend himself. I read now verses 1 to 5 of Acts chapter 23. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. In his defense, Paul claimed he had done nothing that was against Jewish customs and had a good conscience before God for his actions. Now, Paul wasn't saying he was perfect, but simply that he believed he was innocent of what was accused of him. With this declaration, the high priest Ananias, who was known historically as a very corrupt individual, commanded a Roman guard next to Paul to strike him on the mouth. Paul reacted and declared that God would deal with the high priest in a severe way for his unwarranted action. He accused him of trying him under the pretense of due process and following the law. But in fact, by striking him, they'd already passed judgment on him. You see, Jewish law dictated that one is innocent until proven guilty. When some around him commented that Paul had just insulted God's high priest, Paul seemingly apologized in verse 5. But I believe in reality, Paul responded ironically saying, he didn't think a man who would give such an illegal and unfair order could be the high priest someone who should have a very high moral standard. Paul's prophetic words came true as the Jews would assassinate high priest Ananias in the uprising against the Romans in AD 66, nine years after Paul stood before him. From Paul's bold words and actions, we see our first biblical principle about spiritual conversations. Principle number one, a good conscience leads to boldness. A good conscience leads to boldness. You know, my friends, we're often afraid to speak with someone about spiritual things because we ourselves don't have a very good testimony. Think about why so many people dislike Christianity. Because of Christians, the people representing Jesus Christ, sadly, aren't very Christ-like. Of course, we can say everyone needs to look to Christ and not to imperfect people like us but we can't help the world from naturally looking at our lives and assessing Christianity through the way we live our lives. Therefore, having a good conscience in the way we live our lives will grant us boldness to have spiritual conversations. A few weeks ago, I was having breakfast in Houston with a missionary pastor from Mexico and his wife at a typical American diner. When the server approached us to take our order, I was surprised when the couple asked for the server's name, declared that they were Christians, 
and said that one of the things they always do when dining out is that they would like to pray for the server. They asked the server if he had any prayer requests. I was taken aback by the boldness of that question. When was the last time you were at a restaurant and asked the server what you can pray for them for? The server thought for a moment and asked for prayers as he was looking for a second job and for his health. He thanked the couple for asking and went on to take our orders. Before we ate our breakfast food, we prayed for the server's prayer requests, fulfilling what they said they would do. You know, I was a bit ashamed because as a pastor myself, I've never asked a server in all my life if they had something for me to pray for. Maybe that is something we can think about doing if the opportunity arises. But my point in telling this story is if the couple was having a huge fight and then asked the server what they could pray for, I'm not sure if he would want a publicly fighting couple to pray for him or think to himself, you guys need prayers for your relationship more than what I'm going through. But because we were having a warm fellowship between pastor friends, then our good testimonies and conscience led the couple to boldly turn the conversation spiritual with the server and ask for his prayer requests, which he gave. You see, Paul's boldness comes from his good conscience. He said it himself. When people know that they have lived a life above reproach, they have nothing to be afraid of, regardless of the consequences. We see this in the life of Daniel. He was so bold because of the way he lived his life. The only thing they could accuse Daniel of doing when they investigated his life was that he prayed too much. My friends, does our good conscience in how we have lived our lives give us the boldness to have spiritual conversations? I read now verse 6. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Paul knew the Jewish religious council or supreme court of ancient Israel was filled primarily with two religious sects within Judaism, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were more elitist and aristocratic than the Pharisees. They tended to be wealthier and hold more power positions. Most of the chief priests and the high priests were Sadducees, and they held the majority seats in the Sanhedrin. On the other hand, the Pharisees were more representative of the common working people and had the respect of the masses. The Sadducees were friendlier with Rome and more accommodating of Roman laws than the Pharisees were. The Sadducees focused on the first five books of the Bible known as the writings of Moses or the Pentateuch, and they didn't believe in the resurrection and in the existence of angels, demons, heaven, and hell. Their focus was centered on power and wealth. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were more focused on the spiritual elements of Judaism and believed that one's actions on earth had an eternal effect. They were more pious and religious than the Sadducees. So when Paul declared that he was a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee, he was identifying with one faction of the Jewish council. And because he knew he would not get a fair trial in the Sanhedrin, he would now seek to divide the jury. He declared to the council that he was being judged for his belief in the resurrection, which was true. You see, Paul had been preaching that the Messiah Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And because of his ability to conquer death, it proved that he was the promised Savior who could forgive sins. 
What Paul had done was to bring up a long-standing theological debate between the Sadducees and the Pharisees about the truth of the resurrection. Paul wisely took the attention away from himself and now brought it to a bigger theological issue. Can someone rise from the dead? Look what happened in verses 7 to 10. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. Paul's declaration causes Sanhedrin to argue amongst themselves over their fundamental disagreement whether the resurrection was something real or not. The Pharisees now sided with Paul and declared that Paul was innocent. It is almost unbelievable what happened. The very faction that was primarily confronting Paul now embraced him as their own and declared him innocent because for them, there was a larger issue to fight over with their rival group. With the argument so heated for the protection of Paul, the Roman commander commanded his soldiers to take Paul back into custody and take him to the safety of the barracks away from the arguing Sanhedrin. Now, what we see here is a masterstroke of Paul when it came to spiritual conversations. He took the focus away from himself and brought in a more important issue. And from this, we get our second biblical principle about spiritual conversations. Number two, turn the focus away from you and to more important issues. Turn the focus away from you and to more important issues. You see, sometimes when you talk to someone about spiritual things, the focus is on you or on a certain person. And since no one is perfect, there's always something to complain about in relation to you or to the someone you're talking about. And so you may be stuck on a particular character issue for a long time. For example, as you talk to someone about eternal matters, they may say, but you have problems in your own marriage. Why should I listen to you? If you move the conversation focus away from you by acknowledging that you are not perfect and deficient, then you can turn the conversation onto the bigger issues of life. You can say, yes, I know I don't have a perfect marriage. No one does, but I'm working on it. However, in this imperfect world, what are your thoughts about life after death? Or in another situation, you can acknowledge, yes, I'm going through a difficult time, but this is what I'm thankful for because God has blessed me even through these challenging times. Or, yes, these challenges have been hard to get through, and while I'm not diminishing my hurts, I know that there's a silver lining in all of this because perhaps God has a bigger purpose or a lesson for me to learn. What do you think about this? See how you can turn the focus from you to more important issues in life? You see, this principle is something even the secular world understands. Sarah Gershman, an executive speech coach and professor at the Georgetown University School of Business, where she teaches public speaking to leaders from around the globe, writes this, Most of us, even those at the top, struggle with public speaking anxiety. 
when I ask my clients what makes them nervous, invariably they respond with the same answers. I don't like being watched. I don't like the eyes on me. I don't like being in the spotlight. And it follows that when they get up to speak, nearly all of them initially avoid making eye contact with members of the audience. Therein lies the problem. While avoiding direct eye contact may seem like an effective strategy for coping with speaking anxiety, it actually makes you even more nervous. Fortunately, there is a solution, human generosity. The key to calming the amygdala and disarming our organic panic button is to turn the focus away from ourselves, away from whether we will mess up or whether the audience will like us, and toward helping the audience. When we approach speaking with a spirit of generosity, we counteract the sensation of being under attack and start to feel less nervous. You see, you're the most nervous right before you speak. This is the moment where your brain is telling you, everyone is judging me. What if I fail? And it is exactly at this moment that you can refocus your brain. Remind yourself that you are here to help your audience. Be firm with your brain. Tell yourself, brain, this presentation is not about me. It is about helping my audience. Over time, usually between four to six presentations, your brain will begin to get it, and you will become less nervous. My friends, if the secular world gets it, in conversations, spiritual ones at that, turn the focus away from you and understand it's about more important issues like salvation, eternal life, lasting peace, real hope, truth, real blessings, purpose in life, and other things, all of which are to help others. You know, at its core, when we talk about spiritual things, it's because we want to help others, not because we have nothing better to talk about. We want to help others see the futility of living their life apart from God with a destiny that includes eternal death and to help them see that truth and eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. I read now verse 11. But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. In this wonderful verse, as Paul must have been wondering what would now happen to him, the Lord spoke to encourage him. Paul was told to be of good cheer because this was all part of God's plan. As he was able to testify for Jesus in Jerusalem, the events that have and will transpire will give Paul the opportunity to testify in the very center of the Roman Empire, Rome. I love how biblical scholar F.F. F. Bruce puts it in commenting on this verse. This assurance meant much to Paul during the delays and anxieties of the next two years and goes far to account for the calm and dignified bearing which seemed to mark him out as a master of events rather than its victim. Indeed, Paul was not a victim of the circumstances, but rather the master of it because God was working out a plan. Paul was simply to be patient and to be ready in all circumstances to witness for Jesus. And this is our third biblical principle about spiritual conversations. Number three, be ready in all circumstances to witness for Jesus. Be ready in all circumstances to witness for Jesus. My friends, God will give us many opportunities to speak on behalf of Him and to share spiritual things. Our responsibility is to be ready. In fact, 
That's what the Apostle Paul later writes young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, these words. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. My friends, are you ready today, in your next meal perhaps, with your friends and family, to have a spiritual conversation with them? Are you ready to have a spiritual conversation with your children about the things of God? I've said it before, spiritual conversations should not be had when the family member or friend is hooked up to a ventilator in a hospital and you are unsure if they can even hear you and comprehend what you're saying. Spiritual conversations need to happen when the person is aware, coherent, and can respond to that conversation. Often, it's not that the opportunity to have a spiritual conversation is not present. It's that we are not ready. We are simply not ready to talk about Jesus or about important spiritual things in life. Hazel Shenick shares about being ready in all circumstances by just starting a spiritual conversation. She writes, You don't have to be all-knowing to start a spiritual conversation. All you really need is a great question that connects to someone's spiritual longings. The need for intimacy, destiny, and meaning in life is universal. Talking about those needs can be a great place to start a spiritual conversation. Here are a few questions that may help you start. On the topic of destiny, which includes the themes of ambition, dreams, progress, failure, fantasy, apathy, and hopelessness, you could ask the questions, what do you want to accomplish in life? What fears are holding you back from pursuing your dreams? On the topic of intimacy, which deals with the themes of love, community, belonging, betrayal, jealousy, bitterness, and hatred, you could ask the questions, do you have to meet certain expectations to earn approval from the people in your life? Or is there someone in your life that you would do anything for? On the topic of meaning of life, where the themes of faith, truth, status, significance, doubt, fear, cynicism, selfishness, and others abound, you could ask the question, where do you find meaning in your life? Or, do you have a faith? Or, how do you face obstacles and disappointments? May these questions perhaps start spiritual conversations in your life. Recently, I met up with a friend who seemed to have the perfect life. He seemed to have the perfect family, the perfect children. They were the perfect couple. He had the perfect job. They had the perfect house and the perfect looks. When we chat, he usually just keeps things superficial. But after more than 20 years as a pastor, I sensed that something deeper was going on with him. Now, I could have chosen to keep the conversation light and enjoy the delicious dinner he was treating me to, or I could probe deeper and knew that things might get messy. So, prompted by the Spirit, I asked him just one question. Friend, how are you really doing? Tears welled up in his eyes. He told me, Stephen, not so good. He began to talk about his not-so-perfect life behind the outwardly manicured, perfect family facade. He and his wife were constantly fighting. There was loss of trust. There was emotional abuse and verbal abuse. His job was unstable. All was not well in his household. By the way, I have his permission to share the story. I heard him share his heart and then prayed with him as tears streamed down his face. I gave him a hug 
and he thanked me for taking the time to listen to him and not quickly jumping in and start offering spiritual solutions, even though the fix-it tendency inside of me had about 30 things for him to do to fix his problems, and I was ready to share them. I'm glad I kept quiet and simply listened. Anyway, I said he could call me up anytime if he wanted to chat more, because none of us are perfect, even if social media makes us believe that some lives are perfect. I guarantee you, behind those smiles and perfectly crafted images and videos are normal men and women like you and me with pains and struggles. I share this story because this is the power of being ready when the Spirit leads and prompts to ask one question to kick off a spiritual conversation that may help someone in need. I read now verses 12 to 15. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing till we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. In these verses, we find out about a conspiracy to kill Paul. A group of more than 40 people conspired with the chief priests and elders to attack him as he was being escorted under false pretense for another round of questioning by the Sanhedrin. Now look with me at verses 16 to 21. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside, and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than forty of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. Now, we don't know the circumstances of how Paul's nephew came to know the plot, but because of the rights afforded a Roman citizen under custody, Paul's nephew was able to tell him of this plot as a visitor, and Paul in turn asked that his nephew be brought to the commander to inform him of what he knew. Perhaps because of the corrupt and evil reputation of the high priest Ananias, the commander believed this plot to be true. Look at his actions starting in verse 22. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, and provide mounts to set Paul on, and bring him safely to Felix the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. 
And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Verse 31. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. In these verses, we see that the commander, Claudius Lysias, decided to send Paul to the Roman provincial capital of Caesarea Maritima under the cover of night at 9 p.m. with a contingent of 470 men. Claudius didn't want his reputation sullied that he allowed a Roman citizen to be assassinated under his watch. Now accompanying this contingent was a letter from the commander to Felix, the governor of the Roman province of Syria, which included Judea. What's interesting is that in this letter, Claudius' assessment of Paul was that he was not guilty of any crimes that deserved death or imprisonment. The only issue was that Paul's interpretation of the Jewish law was contrary to that of the Jewish religious leaders. This would be the second Roman official after Gallio, whom we talked about in Acts chapter 18, that would declare Paul innocent. More would do so, as we'll see. Anyway, when Paul arrived in Caesarea, he was presented to Governor Felix, who agreed to hear his case. He would wait for Paul's accusers to come to the provincial capital, but in the meantime, he would be held in Herod's praetorium, the governor's official resident, where there were holding cells. Paul would now have an opportunity, as we'll soon see, to witness and testify about Jesus before a Roman governor, the highest official in the province. As God had so encouraged Paul in his holding cell in Jerusalem, he should be joyful because all of these unique trials and challenges are giving him the opportunity to testify for Jesus to people whom he would otherwise not have had an opportunity to share Jesus with. You see, my friends, God will use our circumstances to place you and me in positions to encounter unique people to talk to about Jesus. In this case, it took a riot, an unjust imprisonment, a conspiracy to kill, an informant, and an escape in the middle of the night to get Paul an audience with the most powerful man in the region. But that's what it took for Paul to share Jesus with Governor Felix. From these verses, we extrapolate our fourth biblical principle about spiritual conversations. Number four, God uses circumstances to position you to talk to specific people. God uses circumstances to position you to talk to specific people. My friends, consider every person you meet a divine appointment to share Jesus with, or at the very least, to have a spiritual conversation with to plant the seed of the gospel or to serve as an encouragement. Because you never know, an unexpected delay could be a divine appointment. Joseph Kidder shares the story. On my flight back from Fiji, I had an aisle seat in a four-seat row. The seat next to me was the only empty one in the plane. A young lady, whom I later learned was Christina, approached me. She explained that she had been sitting in the back of the plane with a university group that had gone to Fiji to do medical work. 
feeling a need to break away from her group to have some time by herself, she announced that she wanted to change her seat to the empty one next to me. Although I had been hoping that nobody would sit next to me for the 11-hour trip, God had other plans. As it was late at night, most passengers fell asleep. About four hours before our arrival in Los Angeles, the crew woke us up due to a turbulence and breakfast was served. Introducing myself to the young lady next to me, I asked what she was doing in Fiji. In turn, she also inquired what I had done there. I told her I had gone there to speak to pastors and church members on the island. At that moment, she became sad. She told me that a few years before, she had given her heart to Jesus and lived a Christian life. Those few years, she believed, had been the best of her life. Christina had felt joy, purpose, and excitement. Then she went to college, and the secular atmosphere pulled her away from her relationship with Christ. Taking the opportunity to talk to her about God, I spent the next three hours sharing scripture and tips and ideas for how she could reconnect with God. I also gave my own personal testimony. Then I asked if I could pray for her. Please, please pray for me, she said. I need it. I want that experience back in my life. When I opened my eyes at the end of the prayer, I saw Christina crying. Giving me a hug, she said, this was a divine appointment. There are 340 seats on the plane, and the only empty one was next to you. God was leading me to sit over here. He brought us together for a purpose. I realized that through this encounter, and others like them, that God works through us, sending us out to share His love, a divine appointment. Our words and actions are powerful, no matter how seemingly small or insignificant. My friends, as you and I prepare to go out into the world to have spiritual conversations with people, remember that, number one, a good conscience leads to boldness. Number two, turn the focus away from you and to more important issues. Number three, be ready in all circumstances to witness for Jesus. Number four, God uses circumstances to position you to talk to specific people. Who knows, perhaps this week, the next person you ask, how are you really doing, may cause them to turn to Jesus. How exciting. My friends, let's go out and live the exciting life God has planned for us by having spiritual conversations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul and how he was able to have spiritual conversations with all types of people enabled by the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for encouraging him that he is to speak truth and love in whatever circumstances. May we as your followers also do the same, always ready in all circumstances to witness for you. Help us to always keep the focus upon you and that through the way we live our lives, we will have the boldness to understand that you often position us to reach people in this world for you. Allow us to be sensitive this week and in the years ahead, every time we meet someone, to ask them about how they're doing and perhaps to turn the conversation spiritual. Challenge our hearts, Lord. Give us the opportunities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.